Good evening. Uh, my name is Freddie. I am the pastor of young adults here at Northview. We are continuing in our series, The Lord, The Lord. And if you forgot what the series was because you've been gone for a full month, uh, that's totally fine. It's behind me on the screen. The Lord, the Lord is a phrase that we get from Exodus 34. I'll quickly read it for us just to frame the general series. <clears throat> the Lord passed before him, before Moses, and proclaimed these words. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We picked this text as the, the inspiration for this series, where every week we're just going to cover an attribute of God as described in this passage. Uh, if we want to know who God is, we should let God speak, and he did in Exodus 34. And one of the things God says about himself is that he is gracious. So today we're going to talk about God's grace. Before we get to that, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, and I want to frame that portion of scripture and why we chose it. We, I'm including all of us, not just me, but we, I think, love villain origin stories. I think there's something about it that draws us in, and it doesn't matter who the villain is. Uh, Cruella DeVille, uh, the creepy octopus lady in Little Mermaid, uh, Bane, the Voldemort, right? the, I think that's his name, the bad dude in Harry Potter. Uh, it doesn't matter who the villain is, we're drawn to them, not because we want to be like them, uh, but because these characters fascinate us. We, they, they add color to a story. They make movies about villains, about bad guys, uh, and documentaries. And you might know that this last September in 2022, they released a documentary called Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. Uh, if you don't know Jeffrey Dahmer's story, the film is appropriately named. This is a man who was born in, in 1960 and died in the early 90s uh, while he was in prison. And he had about a decade where he would pursue people, murder them, and then sometimes eat them. So he's a very wicked dude, or was a very wicked dude. And uh, he was, I guess, his story was shared in a Katy Perry song with like a throwaway line by one of the the add-in rappers. Uh, so this guy is infamous. He's, he's a villain of the highest caliber. We know he's a wicked dude, uh, but that, that film, that documentary was watched by a lot of people, which makes me wonder, like, why is it that we watch these things? What is it about uh, these films? What is it about these characters that draw us in? I think they intrigue us, but I think they intrigue us because deep down inside, we want to hope that even the most wicked person could change. Because if they could change, and they're this wicked, us being this wicked, certainly we can change. I think when we see these monsters, it makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves. And we're gonna look at a passage in scripture that challenges us, that doesn't make us feel good about ourselves at all, but a passage that when we look at it closely, we also learn who God is. We learn that he is a gracious God that loves to show grace to the wicked. My big idea for today is God gives second chances. So if you are here today and you need that reminder, I hope that you remember that God gives second chances. 
God does four things in this passage. We're going to walk through each one. God commands, God corrects, God curses, and lastly, God covers. At the very end, I have two takeaways. So first, God commands. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the, in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Uh, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Uh, you know, that one over there. Uh, Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the, the, uh, the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed, sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We're picking up in Genesis chapter 3. The first three chapters of Genesis frame the entirety of the Bible. They explain the characters. We've met everyone important. We meet God in Genesis 1.1. We meet people by the end of Genesis 1, Genesis 1.27. Genesis 2 zooms in on the creation of humankind. And then by Genesis 3, we meet a bad guy. Right? This is standard plot arc. And there is a massive contrast between Genesis 3 verse 1 and the stuff that came just before it, Genesis 2.24, Genesis 2.25. In Genesis 2.24 and 25, we learn that there is one man and one woman, and they're joined together in marriage, and we are told they are naked and not ashamed. They are living on uh, an all-inclusive resort. They have a honeymoon. They have the entire place to themselves, a perpetual honeymoon for the first couple on earth prior to Genesis 3. And then post-Genesis 3, we found out that someone crashed the party. The serpent is an unwelcome third wheel, and he shows up to spit some game, I guess, at the couple and try to lead them into a terrible decision. The reason it's a terrible decision is because God had already commanded them very clearly what was required to live in his garden of paradise. Genesis 2, 16 and 17 says this. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. There is a garden. There is many trees. You can eat of all of them. But that one tree over there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. The first humans, Adam and Eve, are given tremendous freedom. They have a garden, they have food, they have animals, they have everything. And God says, eat whatever you want, except for over there, don't eat that tree. God gives them very clear instructions with one very simple limit. But in six verses, Satan is able to tempt this couple and lead them to mess things up. There's three layers to the rebellion of the first couple. The first one starts with what seems like a pretty innocent question. Uh, the, the serpent asks, did God really say? And at first you think, uh, maybe he's just curious. Maybe he didn't know. Maybe God commanded them, but he kind of whispered it to Adam and Eve. So the serpent simply was ignorant. He, he needed to learn. But as their conversation continues, you start to see that this, this character is quite wicked. He starts with the simple question, did God really say? Is God holding out on you? Do you even know God do you know if God is actually for you? 
There's a lot of implied ideas underneath the question. And the woman answers him immediately. We hope she sees through his trickery, but she answers and she correctly quotes the first part of Genesis 2, 16 and 17. But then she adds a line. You know, you may, not, you may eat of trees, but you may not eat of this tree or even touch it. And we start to see that Eve's picture of God is already a little bit jaded. God gave almost absolute freedom, and what she heard was almost, not absolute freedom. She's viewing God in a slightly twisted way. And the serpent sees his chance, and he explicitly states, uh, you, you will be like God. You will not die. And the trap is laid uh, this is honestly one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Uh, surely there are others when Jesus wept, uh, when Jesus is on the cross and he's laying up out his spirit and he says, Father, why have you forsaken me? I think those are sadder verses. But in this one, uh, we as the audience have a glimpse into what is happening and we should feel sad for this couple. Genesis 1.27 is a very important Christian verse that teaches us that all humans are made in the image of God. Male and female, he made them. In the image of God, he made them. This is the foundation of like why we believe people matter, regardless of their ability, regardless of what they've said or done. And the serpent comes up to the woman and says, you'll be like God. He promises them something they already had. But the offer is enticing enough that they're willing to disobey God. And this is one of the unfortunate aspects of what sin is. It's deceitful. It tricks us. It offers us something we already have. And the first couple were already like God. They were already made in his image. They were already in relationship with God. But he says, you can be like him even more. And they couldn't resist the offer, so they jump at it. We see very quickly in this story that Adam and Eve disobey God. Uh, they, they failed to trust him. And I think fundamentally, this is the human condition. I think we struggle to trust God's provision. Has God given us enough? God gave them an entire garden, but he held out on one tree. Did he give them enough? And I think we think the same way. Jesus speaks to people like you and me in Matthew 6, 25, and he says this, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? We face the same temptation that Adam and Eve did. Is God giving us enough? Has God given us enough? Uh, will he meet our needs? Will we trust him? And I think humans struggle to trust. Genesis 3 tells us why, but everyone post-Genesis 3 struggles to trust. I experienced this firsthand uh, when I was working construction a couple years back. I went to CBC and I needed some, a side hustle because school is expensive, so I worked as a construction guy once a week. And the crew I worked on was building a chicken barn, but I was pretty green, so they didn't trust me to work on the chicken barn. So then I went with the pro guy, because he's gonna teach me some stuff, and we went to the customer's house to put up a fence. And if you've ever put up a fence, you know that you have to set a plumb line. So the plumb line is designed to help you set your posts, because if your posts are correct, the fence will be correct. 
If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sorry, but you probably should learn some of these things if you ever hope to own a home. Not in the Fraser Valley, but somewhere else on the planet. So we, we go to this guy's house, and it's the, like the pro guy and myself, super green, and then the customer, who is a retired farmer, but he was helping set up the barn for his son. He comes out, and he starts to help, which I didn't know any better, but that should have already been a red flag. Like, when a customer, like, pulls up and starts to help, that's, they're going to meddle, and he did. So he helped us set the plumb line, and then every time we, we dug all the holes, and as we put the posts in and dumped concrete in, every single time we were going to set a post, he's like, is it, is it plumb? Like, is it flush to the line? And I was like, yeah, it's good enough. And he was like, sorry, did you say good enough? I was like, yeah, like, it, it looks pretty good. He's like, no, 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 is it flush? And I was like, I'm not sure what the difference is. Like, I mean, it's touching the string. And he checked every single post. It was hard not to be offended. Uh, I, like, I was green, I'm not going to lie to you, but I wasn't that green. Like, I can put a piece of wood against a string. I think anyone can do that. My two-year-old son can do that. So the guy truly failed to trust. He had hired people that were professionals that were going to do their thing, but it, he, he seemed to think that we were holding out on him. We put the crappiest employee on the most important job, and he's going to mess it all up. This fundamental mistrust of people, that good enough is never enough, it's not just unique to this customer. I think that's the human condition. In Adam and Eve, we see the same thing. Good enough is actually never enough. And when God gave them an entire garden, they said, good enough is not enough, Lord. We want that tree. And they took the tree. God commanded them something. God commands. And God does not turn a blind eye when he's disobeyed. So God corrects. That's the second part of our passage. God corrects. Genesis 3, verse 8. They heard the, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. God steps into this passage to correct, but before we really talk about that, I think there's one thing we need to note. God likes to come around. Like, God likes to be present. I think this is something that we don't always notice, but this is part of who God is, right? When you are having family dinner, is it good enough if it's just you and your parents? No, you want, you want everybody there, right? When grandma and grandpa invite you over, they don't want just one grandkid. They want all of them. God is that kind of parent. God is that kind of grandparent. He wants everyone around. He wants to be around Adam and Eve, so he walks through the garden. And as he shows up, as he tries to spend time with his kids, we find out that they are dodging him. They're hiding, which we see because of the question, where are you? And then Adam confesses, I, I was afraid. And God recognizes, oh my goodness, something is wrong how, how do they know they're naked? Have they eaten of the tree? And this detail is so interesting for us because like, we're used to wearing clothes. Uh, we can't even imagine 
what life would be like where you wouldn't need that. Uh, You see, our world has fear. We don't truly want to be seen. Our world has anxiety where when you see me, I wonder, how do you see me? What do you think of me? We have body image issues, insecurities, competition, bills, scarcity of goods. Uh, We can't imagine heaven. We can't imagine a garden this good. But Adam and Eve, they lived in a garden this good where they were naked and not ashamed. Their world was totally different. And within six verses, everything changed. And when God steps in and Adam says he's afraid, God recognizes that everything has changed. The couple's bliss is now broken and perfect love has been replaced by fear. They're afraid of God and they're afraid of each other. So they turn to fig leaves as if those could cover them. Fear doesn't stay just fear. It turns into blame shifting. And we see that very clearly in the passage. God speaks to Adam what did you do, bro? And Adam says, it was her. And then God speaks to the woman, and she says, it was the serpent. Everyone's passing the buck. Manure flows downhill, as they say. I mean, it's pretty, I mean, it's a very accessible image, I think. My point is, they're all passing the buck. Fear turns into blame shifting. Uh, but we have to ask a question. As we're reading this story, we want to be like good literary scholars. Oh, why did God ask these questions? Like, I thought God would know these things. Doesn't God know everything? The textbook answer is yes, God knows all things. Let me give you a few verses. Psalm 147.5, great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Uh, yes, God knows all things. God's questions are not about lacking knowledge. God's questions are an opportunity to correct this couple. He's asking a question to give them a chance to repent. Let me show you what I mean. James 4, 6 says that he gives more grace. God, God gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. One of the realities of repentance is that humility precedes it. For you to actually change, you have to be willing to admit you were wrong. You messed up. You did something dumb. You did something wicked. And God is asking questions. Where are you? To give the couple an opportunity to say, God, we messed up. I know you said we could have all of this, but not that. But we flipped it. We went for that and rejected all of this. God is giving them a chance to come to him. God is giving them a chance to humble themselves and seek his forgiveness. God is the kind of God who would forgive. But Adam and Eve are blinded by fear, and they don't come to him. In this passage, God is correcting. He's offering them an opportunity to recognize their error, uh, but they don't take it. Adam and Eve fail to repent, and they must face the consequences for their action. So now we see the third thing that God does. God curses. And I think this is the toughest part of this passage. And this is the part I think that we, we build the most theology out of because it's very significant for understanding why our world is the way it is today. Genesis 3, 14 to 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. These are not very happy verses. These are really hard verses, actually. But these verses help us understand how God reacts both to sin and why our world is the way it is today. Uh, we call these curses, and I, I want you to understand why we call them curses. Uh, we call them curses because they carry theological significance. Uh, if you've not read a theology book, you would not recognize this language, but I'll share it with you anyways, because I want you to have the right framework for understanding this text. Uh, when God made creation, when God made Adam and Eve, uh, he built the world in what we would call a covenant of works. A covenant of works means that they're in a relationship. A covenant is a relationship. And covenants carry blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. So God made a world for Adam and Eve, entered into relationship with them. We see that in the previous portion of scripture we read. He walked in the garden among them, verse 8. But the relationship carries blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. If you listen to me, you live in this garden that has everything. If you disobey me, there are consequences. They're what we would call curses. And Genesis 3 uses the language of curses because people have broken the relationship with God. There are three characters who mess things up, so there are three layers of curses. Each person, each, per, each creature gets a curse. So the serpent in verses 14 and 15 is humbled. The serpent is told you will be, like, you will have your face in the dust, per, like, perpetually. And for us, like, this doesn't seem like that big of a deal. We only know snakes as creatures that crawl anyways. Uh, but the, the image is meant to be humiliating, right? We still use phrases that imply if you've got something on you, you're, like, you look gross, right? So if you have egg on your face, you say something stupid, and we're like, oh, he had egg on his face in a meeting. Or uh, you have schmutz on your shirt. Like, when, when you have something that ruins your appearance, you not heard schmutz? Schmutz? Adam had schmutz on his shirt before he got here. Uh, you're my dog, though. When, when people have these things, right, it makes them look bad. It, it humbles them. And God is saying, you actually aren't just going to have schmutz on your face. You're going to crawl on the ground. You'll have schmutz on your entire body uh, because you're the bad guy. And you mess things up in my creation. And I don't turn a blind eye when you mess things up. But in the same passage, so that's verse 14. In verse 15, we also have a glimmer of hope. God is speaking to the serpent and says, yeah, there's going to be war. There'll be enmity between you and between, like, humankind, the offspring of the woman. And that guy's going to step on you and you're going to bite him. So there's this war, and we have to say uh, uh, there's hope. There's a flicker of, of hope. You're like, well... If the war is going on, well, who wins? Well, it's a foreshadow. I guess we'll see. You have to read the rest of the story. To the woman, God says, you will have pain. And that pain is located in a very particular place. Uh, you will have pain in childbirth. So there, there's two layers to the woman. You'll have pain in childbirth, 
and you will have a contrary desire. So both of these things, tough, tough news, ladies, uh, but what they are is they're, they're a challenge that each of these characters is facing. The serpent is humbled. The woman will have pain in childbirth and a contrary desire. And then Adam has the longest list. He has three verses. And we're told he will have pain. The same exact word is used, but not the same kind of pain. He'll have pain in working the earth. So both of them, in a sense, will have pain in labor, but one is child labor and one is manual labor. But both of them will struggle to do the things God has made them to do. Lastly, verse 19 is the saddest one of all. Uh, you are from the dust, and to the dust you will return. Uh, they will die. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 19, tells us everything that is wrong in the world. We experience tremendous pain, life is super hard, and then you die. So the world is a pretty miserable place at times. But we need to understand these curses. I think if we focus on the curse... We start to think the world sucks, and you're like, what's the point? But the curses aren't meant to be like punishments in the sense that it, it's arbitrary. It's just meant to hurt. The curses are actually frustrations. They're challenges. They're, they're uh, uh, something that makes it harder in doing your, your duty or, or your role. Genesis 128 is God's command to all humans. He says, be fruitful and, and multiply. Have dominion over the earth and subdue it. And then the way that they experience that individually is by caring for the earth, by like making stuff in the garden. And then, or collectively they work together. And then individually, Adam is to work the earth and Eve is to have children. So together they multiply. So the curses make it harder to do these things. The woman has pain in childbirth, and the man has pain in his labor. Their ability to be fruitful, God made them to be fruitful, to multiply, to have dominion. Their ability to obey God is actually hindered as a result of their rebellion. And you would think, like, this is bad, but it's actually not the worst part of the story. The worst part of the story is that, is death, verse 19. And we find out that the serpent is truly a bad guy. He's a liar. In Genesis 3, 4, the serpent said this, you will not surely die, right? If you run the tapes back, right? You throw the red challenge flag, like, give me the replay. I thought you said we wouldn't die. He's like, oops, my bad. I was wrong. Or worse, he knew and was tricking them, was lying to them. And because of Adam and Eve's rebellion, death has entered the world. From Genesis 1 and 2, within six verses, things are bad. By the time we hit verse 19, one chapter later, not even a full chapter later, death has entered into God's perfect creation. All humanity is doomed to suffering and death. What started as a garden party is turning into a nightmare. So God curses. If the story ended here, it'd be a pretty crappy story. But the story is not over. The fourth thing God does is God covers Genesis 3, verse 20 to 24. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man 
And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. These last few verses are often disregarded as we teach to this passage. I teach a, a little theology class here at the church called Leadership 101, and I walked through this passage a couple months ago, and I stopped at verse 19. I was teaching about sin, and I had everything I needed, verses 1 to 19. But the passage actually continues. The story continues, and there is something significant in the second or in, in the last third of Genesis 3, and it's the idea of grace. This passage does not end with the failure of the humans. It ends with showing the graciousness of God. If we're going to define grace very quickly, grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's getting something better than, than you've actually earned. Adam and Eve, what do they deserve in this story? So quick recap. Uh, God was generous to them. He said, I've made you this place. You are on a perpetual honeymoon. You can eat literally anything. You will never die. Uh, you don't even have to wear clothes because there's only peace, no fear, no anxiety, no vulnerability. And they're like, but what about that tree? Can we have one of that? No, you cannot eat of that tree, but you can have everything else. God has been tremendously generous with this couple, and they wanted more. Uh, God asked them questions, giving them the opportunity to repent, to apologize at any point in their conversation, Adam could have, like, God didn't step in and, you know, bring the paddle. He stepped in and said, where are you? Did you eat of the tree? He explicitly gave them the opportunity to repent. Yes, I did eat of the tree. Lord, I am sorry. Lord, have mercy. Lord, forgive me. Adam and Eve didn't apologize. They actually ran away. They hid. And then when God pressed them, they blame shifted. And God responds to this, not with judgment, but with grace. Right, the phrase that I'm using is, is covering because God quite literally covers them. Right? We previously did not have fear, shame, guilt, vulnerability, anxiety in Genesis 1 and 2. But now we do. And God gives them clothing to protect them. God gives them clothing to hide their vulnerability. He gives them animal clothing which to us is significant. If you ever wonder what's more important, a person or a creature, the answer is always a person. In God's eyes, people matter most. And he takes these animals and uses the skins to clothe the first humans. God covers them. He covers their shame, a shame they had never experienced before. God doesn't leave them in that. God shows them something that they did not deserve. God gives them grace. But God also covers them metaphorically. Uh, he covers them in the sense that he, like, uh, covers their butt, as the saying goes, C-Y-A. Uh, they live in this garden. They have already eaten of one tree. And there is a second tree in this garden that we might have missed the line. But in verse 22, or he says, uh, if, if they eat of this tree and live forever... And that phrase is kind of funny, right? Like, what's the significance of living forever? That doesn't sound so bad. I thought we did live forever. The, the point is, if Adam and Eve ate of that tree, and they've shown no ability to abstain from eating of things God says not to, they would live forever as broken, sinful creatures. They would be no different than the serpent. Uh, they would be no different than Satan. So, God covers them by removing the temptation for them to sin. 
God responds to their rebellion. God responds to their thanklessness. God responds to their disobedience with grace. I think this is a very unique thing in comparing God and his creation. I want you to imagine with me uh, that you are going on an all-inclusive vacation, your whole family, mom, dad, uh, grandma, grandpa, siblings, cousins, like a schwack of people, a whole bunch of you. You're going on this vacation, and uh, through a series of events, you have enough money that your mom or dad says, hey, you can bring one friend. We'll pay for everything. And you're like, what? Okay, bet. And then you go and you invite this one friend. You tell this friend, hey, here's the deal. Uh, for the next, you know, we're leaving in two weeks. Make sure you book your time off. Uh, while we're gone, uh, we're going to Mexico or Barbados or wherever the heck you guys go. I don't know. I haven't been on vacation in years. Uh, but if you go, you're going somewhere beautiful. And uh, you'll just be part of our family. You're going to have your own room. But we're going to do everything together. Are you in? And everyone would answer, yes, absolutely you're in. Yes, if you get a free, all-inclusive vacation, all of you are going, right? Like there's not a person here who would dodge that, right? Gray, crappy BC weather or white sandy beaches. White sandy beaches, of course. But from the moment your friend says yes, we start to see some, some challenges. Problem number one, uh, they ask you about the flights. And they're like, hey, like, I don't want to sound ungrateful, but it's pretty lame that we're flying coach. Like, I'm kind of tall, and I was hoping that we could upgrade to first class. And you're like, well, my mom and dad already, like, paid for the trip. And they're like, can you ask me if they can just upgrade me then? And you're like, that's kind of a tough look, bro. Like, uh, maybe not. You kind of let it go. Problem number two. Uh, they start asking more details because they're curious. They're like, oh, man, I'm so pumped. Where are we staying? And you're like, we're staying at this family-friendly resort like on the other side of this body of water where there's a cool party resort. And the friend's like, hey, what are the chances mom and dad pay for us to go to the other side? And you're like, well, that's actually not the deal. Like, they, they paid for a package. Like, you're just the extra add-on. Uh, like, we're going as a family. You're just part of our family. And they're like, hey, real talk. Like, that sounds super fun, but I'd way rather be on the other side. You think your parents would pay the difference for me to go to the other side? How, what would you feel towards this friend? They consistently want more. You've given them something beautiful. You've given them more than enough. And every time you talk to them, it is very clear that they want more. That's actually not the worst of your problems. The day of the trip comes, finally. And you're like, thank God, we'll finally go, and they'll shut up. They'll stop whining. They'll appreciate the gift that they have been given. And you agree that because you have to drive to YVR, they'll pick you up, you'll carpool in, they'll park their car so they can at least pay for one thing by paying for the parking jet. Uh, they sleep in. You miss your flight. You're, pre you're like pretty ticked. Uh, so you call them to say, hey, like, work with me. Can you like, you know, at least pitch for your part of the, like, the flight? Like we can still get there, we just have to pay extra. And they've actually blocked your number uh, because they don't want to hear your anger. <clears throat> what would you do here? Like, how much would you be smiling towards this friend? Uh, I think all of us would judge them. Like, we would be pretty angry, I think. Uh, the more direct ones, like myself, would say, you're dead to me, right? <laughs> you're dead to me. Delete my number. Uh, the nicer people, like the Craigs of the world, 
the Adam Van Reeses, they would say, I'm going to call you when I get back. Right? Like, because they're, they're mad too. They're, they get mad too. But they'll, like, give them a chance. Right? But you know, like, you need some time. There is not a person in the world that living through this experience, seeing the consistent thanklessness, seeing the consistent disobedience, would say to themselves, you know what I'm going to do right now? I'm just going to go to their house. I will pick them up. I will pay for the parking jet. I will pay for the replacement flights. And we will get to the vacation that I promised them. No human would do that. God would. God is the kind of God who shows undeserving, thankless, disobedient people grace. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. None of us deserve the vacation. We are the crappy friend. And God says, I'm going to pick you up anyways. I got this. God shows us grace because he showed someone else wrath. If we have been disobedient, if we have been thankless, if we have rejected God, he holds us accountable. God does correct. And someone has to pay that penalty. Genesis 3.15 points forward to a day when someone will. There will be this person who is, who is bruised, who is crushed. And that person is Jesus, who the seed of the woman, Jesus, being fully man, fully God, takes the penalty of sin that you and I have earned. Jesus takes it on himself, dies on a cross, and his sacrifice covers us. This is how the New Testament speaks about the work of Jesus on the cross. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22. For as by a man came death, right? Adam disobeyed, Genesis 3, 19. Now there is death. As by a man came death, by a man also came resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam disobeyed and earned death. Jesus obeyed and earned life. He earned resurrection life. He offers the forgiveness of sins and eternal life to anyone who asks. When I tell you that God gives second chances, the reason that God can give second chances is because Jesus has done something to earn that for you. And I think there are two, two ways that we can respond, two applications to this idea. If God gives second chances, if this is true, I think the very first thing is that we need to know that, that sinners are forgiven. If, if you have not yet come to Jesus because you think, I've messed up too bad, uh, I've, I've been pretty wayward, you don't know my life, it's pretty messy, you don't know the things I've done, you don't know the things I've said, honestly, I, I don't even like Christians or the church, I never read my Bible, I don't really care what you've done because you're not getting forgiveness from me, you're getting forgiveness from God. And God is the kind of God who gives second chances. In God's mind, no one is too far gone. No one can mess up too much. If people couldn't ruin his perfect paradise, nothing that you have done is too much to remove you from God's grace. All you have to do is be humble enough to ask. Humility precedes repentance. And if you repent, God gives second chances. So if you have never repented, you should repent tonight. Tonight should be the night. If you don't even know what that looks like, there'll be people praying up like when we start singing and you can talk to someone and say, I'd like to repent because I want that grace that God offers. If you've never repented, come to Jesus and ask for grace. And secondly, if you are a Christian, 
and you are struggling with sin, as I know so many of us are, it doesn't matter what that sin is. It doesn't matter if it's gossip. It doesn't matter if it's lust. It doesn't matter if it's anger, pride, greed. You name your sin. God gives second chances. I think, I think there's a lot of people that needed to hear that tonight. I think a lot of you need to be reminded that it is never too late to repent. We live in a world that's full of limited time offers of get it while quantities last. God's grace is not that kind of offer. God's grace is an overflowing bucket that will never run dry. God is the kind of God that gives second chances. It is never too late to repent. And once you repent, and once you've been given that second chance, grace is meant to lead to more repentance, to actual change. So the question, what will you do with that second chance? God commands, God corrects, God curses, most importantly, God covers. In this passage, I think we're confronted with the idea that grace sounds too good to be true. You think, well, maybe God would show grace to Adam and Eve. He kind of had to, or we would never get to Jesus. But what about me? Would God show grace to me? Am I too far? And the reality is if we think that we've just not understood the gospel, if you know anything about Jeffrey Dahmer's story, you would know that towards the end of his life, he actually became a Christian, or allegedly became a Christian. We don't know. But what an interesting idea. So many people rejected his conversion because they said he's too wicked. God wouldn't take someone like that. But if you read Genesis 3, you know that God gives second chances you know that actually that's the exact person that God would take. And that is the good news. The good news for people like you and me is if even Jeffrey Dahmer can be forgiven, surely you and I can. God is the God of second chances. I pray that you take the offer. I'm gonna pray for us and then I'll invite the worship team back on stage. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder of who God is, who you are, in that you are a God of second chances. Father, I know there are people in this room who needed that reminder. They're heavy burdened by their sin, or maybe they've never even come to you yet because they just didn't know that you would actually forgive. Father, I pray that people would see you clearly, that they would know that you are the God of grace, the God who gives us what we do not deserve, who offers salvation to all people, Lord, I pray that some take it. I pray that those who are Christians hear that offer of grace, even when they sin, even when they fail, and they think, God, help me walk in obedience today. I pray for great victory over sin. Father, without your help, we cannot do it. So I pray for more grace. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.